If, like me, you've been stuck in a 40 square meter apartment for two months, you're gonna be pretty jealous of Avi Bryant. Indeed, Avi lives on Galliano Island, Canada, not very far from Vancouver, surrounded by forests, overlooking the Salish Sea. In this natural and beautiful, although slightly deer-infested spot, Avi runs the Gradient Retreat Center, a place where writers, makers, and code writers can take a week away from their regular lives and focus on creative work. But it's not only to envy him that I invited Avi on the show. It's to talk about Bayesian inference in Scala, prior licitation, how to deploy Bayesian methods at scale, and how to enable Bayesian inference for engineers. While working at Stripe, Avi wrote Rainier, a Bayesian inference framework for Scala. Inference is based on variants of the Hamilton and Monte Carlo sampler, and the implementation is similar to and targets the same types of models as both Stan and PyMC3. As Avi says, depending on your background, you might think of Rainier as aspiring to be either Stan but on the GVM or TensorFlow but for small data. In this episode, Avi will tell us how Rainier came into life, how it fits into the probabilistic programming landscape, and what its main strengths and weaknesses are. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 22, recorded May 7, 2020. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the project, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting learnbasestats.anvil.app. That's learnbasestats.anvil.app. Do you want to support the podcast and unlock exclusive patient swag at the same time? Then you can visit my Patreon page at patreon.com slash stats. Starting at $3, you can get various benefits like the private LearnBase Stats Slack channel, early access to special episodes, selecting questions for episodes, or even coming on the show. You'll get more details at patreon.com slash stats. Thanks a lot, guys. I'm very grateful for any support. Let me show you how to be a good breezy and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. What's a Bayesian? It's someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes widen. Maybe because my likeness lowers expectations of tight rhyming. How would I know unless I'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men dropping placebo control? Hey guys, here is the usual shout out to my brand new supporters on Patreon, especially those in the full posterior tier or higher. So, a big thank you to Thomas Vicky, Chad Chair, Vincent Arel Bundock, and Nathaniel Neitzke. I'm guessing some of these names ring a bell to longtime listeners, as there are some previous guests in this list. Again, this makes a big difference, helps me pay for the editing and send more Bayesian awesomeness your way. So a grateful thank you from Paris. Keep your feedback coming, guys. And now let's talk about Bayesian inference at scale in industry with Avi Bryant. Avi Bryant, welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for taking the time. You're my first guest from the Scala ecosystem, uh-huh. so I'm excited to discover what you've got for us. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> but before that, let's start by your background. Can you tell us what your story is? How did you come into the data and programming world, maybe? Yeah. In terms of the programming world, even as a kid, there were a lot of programming books around the house because my father, although he was a professor of languages and of Indian languages, he took a kind of computational approach to some of his research. And so he was always kind of learning different programming languages. And so I was bored as a kid and I'd pick up a book and, oh, this is a programming book. Okay. And my parents were always very supportive of that and willing to like go buy me a C compiler in the days when that was something you had to go buy and so on. I ended up studying computer science in university and not long out of university, I got very involved in the open source world through actually Smalltalk which is not a language that a lot of people work in, but it really caught my attention. And I built ultimately a startup using Smalltalk and using a web framework in Smalltalk called Seaside that I developed. And that startup, which was called DabbleDB, I really didn't know what I was doing, but it was a really fun ride. And I think we built a great product and, and also had no idea how to sell the product. But ultimately, after five years, we got acquired by Twitter as Twitter was, this was in about 2010. And Twitter was really my introduction to large scale machine learning and large scale data processing. And it was also my introduction to Scala as a language. So, you know, some people may know this history that Twitter started out on Ruby. And Ruby is not a very high performance language or runtime. It was really causing a lot of problems as Twitter's popularity grew in terms of scaling on Ruby. And they made this very difficult decision to basically transition the entire product over to Scala. And so I joined Twitter sort of right as that was happening. And so part of that for me was learning about data systems at a scale much larger than I had dealt with before. And part of that was learning Scala. And actually, one of the things that I did at Twitter that, that was probably in the long term most impactful at Twitter was to start a project there called Scalding, which was a Scala DSL for data pipelines that ended up getting extremely wide adoption inside Twitter. A little bit of adoption outside Twitter, but ultimately I think Spark and some of the frameworks that have come after that have turned out to be more popular in that space of kind of Scala data DSL. I guess that section of the story that kind of gets me to data and some interest in machine learning at Twitter, I was working on the advertising team, the revenue team. And so the big problem on that team was basically click-through prediction for ads. And so that was my first kind of introduction to that kind of industry machine learning was there. And to rewind a bit as I'm kind of giving this brief biographical sketch, while I was running this small talk startup, one of the very important connections that I made was to a, really a kid at that time, Patrick Collison, who was also using my web framework Seaside in his startup. And we became friends and actually shared office space and so on. And then he went on to start his second startup, Stripe. And so a few years into that, I joined him at Stripe and ended up working on building out the, the kind of data and machine learning teams there. And that was where I first got introduced to Bayesian inference and probabilistic programming. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that's quite the journey. <laughs> <laughs> and what did you study, by the way? Because you started really early into computers and programming. So did you study that or did you went another way? When I started in university, I thought that I was probably going to study filmmaking. 
But I also knew that I was interested in programming and computers. And so I kind of hedged my bets a little bit. And I took a bunch of classes that related to filmmaking and a bunch of classes that related to programming. And I told the university that I was studying linguistics, even though I actually never took a linguistics class, which really confused them. But anyway, it turned out after a couple of years that I didn't get into the film program. You have to like apply with a short film portfolio, that kind of thing. And so I sort of had to fall back to my plan B, which was just to go all the way on computer science and ended up with a computer science degree. But that was not really my plan. I think it turned out well. It turned out to be something that has sort of been constant, enjoyable obsession for the last 20 years, but it was not what I planned to study. Yeah, okay. That's interesting. That's quite nice that you get to do that in Canada. It looks a little also like what you can do in the US, like having a major and a minor. That's right. Which, yeah. which can be very different from each other. That's pretty cool from my point of view, because in France, you can't really do that. You have to decide pretty early what you're supposed to do for the rest of your life, like at 18, which is hard. Yeah, it's a very different system, and it is something that I very much enjoy about the university system in Canada and the U.S., is that kind of flexibility and late binding of the decision about what you're actually going to study. Yeah, that's really nice, at least from my experience and the experience from people I know, which is, of course, a very biased data set. But I think the uncertainty in what you know about what you want to do later is really a lot bigger when you're 18 than when you're like 24 or 25, you know, and it's really nonlinear. It decreases uh, non-linearly, I'd say. So if you can, as you said, bend time to choose <laughs> later when you're 23 or 25, I think it's really great. Yes, and I guess to steer this a little bit towards Bayesian topics, that kind of understanding of uncertainty and being able to defer that collapse from a kind of distribution of the things you might want to do down to a single decision through as much of the process as possible, I think it has a lot of value. One thing I will say from my experience of industrial practice around machine learning and decision making is that people tend to try to carry point estimates through make one kind of best guess estimate and then use that to make another best guess estimate and that life would be a lot better if we could preserve that uncertainty through as much of the process as possible. Yeah, exactly. A lot of using so-called magic numbers. That's also what I saw. Yes. Yeah. We're going to get back to the agent stuff really quickly. <laughs> but, but first, just to have the full background, maybe can you tell us what you're doing nowadays? Sure, uh, And yes. how does all your previous background and study and experiences fit you into what you're doing today? Yeah, so one of the things I guess I should have mentioned is I live and have lived for about the last 10 years really kind of in the middle of nowhere on an island that's about 20 miles off the coast of Vancouver. It's an island about the size and shape of Manhattan, but with only a thousand people. And so it's considerably less dense than Manhattan. And it's a beautiful spot and I really enjoy being here. But of course, if you want to engage with other people doing really exciting work, I've had to leave. For example, when I was working for Stripe, every two months, more or less, I would go down to San Francisco or sometimes to other Stripe offices for a week or so. And, and that travel and time away from my family was, of course, has a cost and could be quite tiring. And at the same time, I've seen there's a lot of people in the tech world who really crave some space to maybe work on more creative or deeper work than they're able to do when they're kind of right in the thick of their lives and their family and their work and their job and their office and so on. And so 
along with a friend who wanted to do something similar for artists, for dancers and musicians, I've created a sort of a retreat center, kind of like a writer's retreat, but aimed at technologists here on Galliano Island, where the intent was to have small groups of people come out for a week or so and just spend time here kind of working on whatever projects they were currently obsessed by and wanted some time away from everything to work on. Now, of course, that's all on pause right now with the pandemic. We will see what happens and how things reopen and what this looks like. But that has been my focus and sort of was intended to be what I focused for 2020 was on enabling these kind of creative retreats for technologists. And that sounds really awesome. And I link to the website in the show notes. Great. Only just for the pictures. It's really <laughs> great. And people can see that. It really looks amazing. And I say that being stuck in a small 40 square meter apartment for more than two months now, it was really appealing to see big houses and trees and just nature, you know, it was both painful and really enjoyable for me to look at the website. <laughs> I have to say, I feel very fortunate during this pandemic to be where I am and be able to kind of roam around the woods and beaches and yeah. so on without fear of running into other people, right? You're never within two meters of anyone yeah. else here, right? <laughs> so it really... Yeah, that's really awesome. I don't know if there are any bears, but I think you have more chances of running into a bear than running into another human beings. In time of a <laughs> pandemic, that's a good thing, I guess. Yes. One nice thing about Island, well, depending on your point of view, one thing about islands, it's easy to control predators. So there, in fact, are not bears or mountain lions or so on the way there would be on the mainland in an equivalent. So yeah. It does mean that we are overrun with deer because there's nothing controlling the deer population. So that's for better or worse. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk about Bayesian methods now. Yeah. You mentioned that you were introduced to them. Do you remember how you were introduced to Bayesian methods and yes. how often do you use them today? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the people that I worked with at Stripe quite closely for many years was Robin Kramer. His background was as an astrophysicist. And he very gently, but persistently, kept pointing me kind of deeper and deeper into the kind of Bayesian world. And so I would be building a model where I was doing some kind of, you know, naive ad hoc kind of typical industry modeling of uncertainty. And he would just kind of gently tell me that maybe I would want to think about that as kind of a prior rather than as a heuristic. And as we worked together in particular on what had been a sort of thorny problem at Stripe, which is knowing when we need to take the difficult step. So so maybe I need to take a step back here and talk a little bit about Stripe and Stripe's business. Stripe processes payments, and so Stripe's customers are merchants who, who run, say, online stores or otherwise need to accept payment online. And there's a risk for Stripe in that, let's say we process payments for a conference, right? So we effectively take the money from the people who are buying conference tickets. We give it to the company that's organizing the conference. And then something very unexpected happens. There's a global pandemic. The conference is canceled. Everybody wants their money back. We give the money back to the people that bought tickets. And then we go to the conference organizers and we ask them for the money back. Well, if they have it, that's great. But what if they don't, right? So what if they had already spent the money on marketing or whatever else, and they are bankrupt, and they can't give us back that money, then we end up with the loss, we being Stripe, right? 
So there's always a risk with Stripe that processing payments is for some merchant is going to lead to Stripe losing money when that merchant goes out of business or if that merchant is in some way fraudulent or something like that. And so the only kind of recourse or preventative step really that a payment processor can take in that case is to hold back a little bit of the money, right? So rather than giving the the conference organizers the full price of every ticket, you give them 90% or 80% or something, and you hold back a little bit for a certain amount of time to protect yourself as the payment processor against that possibility. Now, you don't want to do that right? It makes the merchant extremely unhappy for good reason. It restricts their cash flow. It can cause them problems and become this like self-fulfilling prophecy of, you know, they go bankrupt because you are trying to hold this money against them being bankrupt. And Stripe always has this very kind of merchant first customer service point of view where you really don't want to do anything like that unless you absolutely have to. On the other hand, if you never do it, then you're going to lose a lot of money, right? And so there's this problem of kind of deciding when are you actually going to do that or not? And it's a problem in particular that involves low probabilities of really catastrophic things, right? So for any given merchant, it is very unlikely that they will go under. For some cohort of merchants, you know that only a few percent of them, no matter how you kind of carve up the cohort, only a few percent of them are going to have this problem, right? And so you can't just say, well, what's the most likely outcome, right? What's the modal outcome here? We'll act on that. You have to look at the full distribution of outcomes, and you have to have some kind of utility function that you're going to use to actually make that decision. And so this was a case that really wasn't proving amenable to kind of the traditional industrial like classification methods, and that we realized needed something more like a Bayesian kind of decision-making approach. And so with Robin kind of pushing me in that direction, I started, just did a series of prototypes. Again, the early ones were incredibly naive, but that was kind of working my way towards this kind of a Bayesian modeling approach. And ultimately, that kind of series of increasingly less naive prototypes became this library for doing probabilistic programming in Scala. And the other piece of this that I think is important to understand is why Scala and why when I realized that what we needed was a Bayesian approach to this, were we not just using, say, Stan or PyMC3? And one thing to understand about the kind of technical environment and another thing to understand about kind of the problem here. The problem here involved a very large number of independent models that we needed to run inference on. So Stripe processes for millions of merchants, and we wanted to make an independent decision for each of them. And uh, I suppose with pandemics, there's some correlation and so on. But by and large, we were treating these as, as kind of independent with maybe some kind of global shared prior, but not a lot of correlation between them. And so what we wanted to do was to use a big cluster to run millions of separate models because you were having like one model per merchant, basically. Exactly. We had like one model per merchant, but we had a very large number of merchants, mm, yeah. right? 
And by far the easiest thing for us to deploy as a large parallel processing job over complex feature data was to run on either Spark or Hadoop on a big kind of JVM cluster. Mm. And at Stripe, effectively, production big cluster data jobs were in Scala. That was kind of the rule, the environment, that was what all of the tooling was for. It's not to say that we couldn't have kind of tried to jury-rig something with PyMC3 or Stan running kind of in a massively parallel way, but it would have been at large cost. And in that kind of situation, it seemed, and part of this, frankly, was my kind of naivete at what I was getting myself into, but it seemed like it would be simpler to just build a Scala probabilistic programming system than to kind of do all of the work of hooking up, say, Stan to run well on our cluster. Which is a lot to say. It's not every day that you say that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. If you talk to like Sean Taylor about like the difficulties at Facebook of like deploying profit, which uses Stan at scale, right? It's a real problem that people run into is these deployment environments, especially when you're very concerned about security, you're very concerned about reproducibility, you're very concerned about what happens if someone who's not me gets paged in the middle of the night because there's a problem with this? How do they debug it? You really, in that kind of an industry world, kind of strive towards a certain amount of homogeneity. And so, you know, saying, oh, well, I've got this. It's fine. I have this system where a bunch of R generates a bunch of this programming language Stan you've never heard about. And then there's this binary that converts that into C++ and runs GCC and compiles it. And like, that's how we're going to run the code. Right. And the like ops people or the security people are just going to like stare at you. And so being able to say like, no, I've got this jar. It runs on Hadoop like that much, much easier. <laughs> yeah. And so if you look at that and you don't realize how big a job it is to build a new PPL, then, then it seems like a reasonable decision. I think the other thing is that I was overfitting a little bit on my experience at Twitter, where I was sort of in a similar situation where I was saying, well, people really need to write these complex data pipelines. What people know is Scala. What people are used to deploying here is Scala. Let me just build a Scala DSL for doing complex data pipelines. And it ended up within the company being extremely successful. And so, oh, great. Clearly, that is the way to approach problems. I'll just replicate that here. And so I kind of had this prior that building open source data DSLs in Scala was a winning strategy. And so I was just, you know, cargo culting that. I'm actually very happy that I went down that path. It was very fruitful. I learned a lot. I think Rainier has turned out to be a really interesting artifact. Probably had I known exactly how much work I was getting myself into, I might have looked a little bit harder at how we could deploy Stan at Stripe. But fortunately, I would say, you know, I didn't. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sometimes the rookies naivete key that helps you make great things, you know, because a more experienced guy maybe would have discouraged you and say, oh, no, don't do that. Uh, try to do that instead. And nobody told you that. So you did it. And in the end, it turned out great. So I guess that's good. I always say when I'm talking to people about this stuff that I am not a statistician. I come very much from an engineering background. So implementation is the easy part. The thing that was the long road for me was understanding enough about how does a sampler actually work? What are the diagnostics? What on earth is a Jacobian? How does this work in the multivariate case? Like that stuff was really hard to get my head around. 
just building something that can like do computations fast. That's my comfort zone. So I came at this from a very different background and perspective from most people who build these systems where maybe they're typically, I would assume, much more comfortable with the stats, but maybe a little less comfortable with the engineering. Yeah, yeah. I'm really impressed because you had to figure all of that out in the end. You didn't really know that going into the project. So I'm curious, were you working alone on this project from the start? And also how much time did it take for you to develop a first production ready version of Rainier? So I wasn't working entirely alone, but I would say that I was probably 80% of the effort on Rainier with a number of people that kind of contributed the remaining 20%. With Robin Kramer, who I mentioned earlier, being one of the people who was a close collaborator in the kind of first stage of getting it into production. Mio Alter, who was also at Stripe and who had much more of a mathematical background than I do helped out a lot in the next stages, and including writing the first Hamiltonian Monte Carlo implementation for Rainier. And a number of other people have contributed, but it was largely me kind of driving the project forward. I had a bunch of other stuff that I was working on at Stripe, and so I was never working on it full time. But I would say that maybe the first production version, honestly, is difficult to remember precisely, but I would say on the order of four months of half-time work, something like that, And I probably spent about another year of halftime work while I was at Stripe working on Rainier. So it gives you maybe an idea. Yeah, it sounds pretty fast, actually. I'm really amazed. <laughs> I'm a little intimidated, too. <laughs> actually, that was going to be a follow-up question. How did you guys do for the samplers and the MCMC? You said you are using HMC. So how did you implement all of that? Did you write that up from scratch? Were you able to take some parts away from Stan, from PyMC? How did you end up writing and building the core of what's a probabilistic programming language, which is often the samplers? Right. So the starting point for Rainier was actually me trying to do a port to Scala while I was on vacation, because mm. at that time I wasn't totally sure that this was something that I could file under work time, although it quickly became that. But while I was on vacation, I did a port of Adam Sibior's Haskell paper, I forget the name, but it's something like probabilistic programming with monads, to Scala. I'm trying to think of the exact order, but I believe that was originally like a particle filter, like sequential Monte Carlo implementation. So the first samplers that we had were a sequential Monte Carlo based on that paper, and then also an affine invariant sampler based on the MC package, Dan Foreman Mackey's package in Python. And I sort of thought that was where things would stop. But of course, as many people have discovered, once you get into higher dimensional problems, those do not perform as well. So that was a real turning point in the implementation, which was that I realized that I probably did want to do an HMC sampler, but if I was going to do an HMC sampler, then I would need to be able to do automatic differentiation. And that just completely changes how you go about building the DSL, right? 
And sort of, if people are familiar with systems like TensorFlow, this was basically a shift from what I had before, which was kind of an eager system, kind of directly evaluating tensors full of doubles or whatever, to a static compute graph system, where I was building up a DAG of the computations, and then able to do operations on that DAG, like automatic differentiation, which was what enabled HMC. And so that was almost a total rewrite of the system. But the thing that fell out out of that was really interesting was the monadic evaluation was relatively slow. It was kind of like an interpreter of the model. And once we went to the approach motivated by being able to implement Hamiltonian Monte Carlo of having a static DAG, although that restricted the kinds of models we could do somewhat, right? It meant that we could then compile that similarly to the way Stan emits C++ code, but what we emitted was JVM bytecode. And so although you're running in Scala to build your model, to construct your model, we're then able to compile that to kind of extremely efficient, low-level writing C and Java style, just operating on like arrays of doubles with primitive math operations as Java bytecode, and then run that. And so that made things much faster and much more efficient. That's fascinating. Did you have to figure out Scala at the same time? Because you said that you implemented that in Scala because the pipelines were using Scala at Stripe. But were you already well-versed in Scala or...? I was because of my time at Twitter. So my programming journey, roughly speaking, was kind of as a kid, a lot of C then Objective-C once kind of Mac OS X came out, because I was kind of, I was always a Mac user and interested in Apple and Next and so on, and so I learned Objective-C. And then I learned Ruby actually very early. I was at one of the first Ruby conferences in 2000 and so on, because it seemed like an interpreted language in that family. And then I kind of projected back from Ruby and Objective-C to Smalltalk, which was kind of their common ancestor, and kind of went to the source and got excited about that. But always this very dynamic, object-oriented kind of flavor, right? And then when I got to Twitter, I kind of was comfortable with the Ruby side of Twitter, but Twitter was shifting to Scala. And so that was a big learning curve for me, shifting to Scala. But I ended up being extremely comfortable in Scala, really enjoying Scala. So the reason that Stripe ended up doing a lot of data and machine learning work in Scala is effectively that I brought Scala there and then brought a bunch of Scala people there. So the fact that Stripe was a Scala shop was my fault. And so certainly, you know, I, I had no issues building things in Scala. That fortunately was not something that I had to learn at that time. Yeah, okay. And maybe for listeners who don't know Scala, maybe can you give us like the elevator pitch and tell us when it would be interesting to use Scala instead of another language that people know better? I think the thing that Scala does extremely well is that it takes basically Java and builds on Java without losing any of the important things about Java. And in particular, It interfaces with the Java ecosystem seamlessly. It runs on the JVM with kind of no performance cost. And the JVM is an extremely impressive piece of engineering. It is my favorite runtime to deploy things on, irrespective of language. And the Java ecosystem is extremely rich, especially in the data area, in the kind of large-scale data area. But Scala then layers on top of that kind of Java foundation a lot of very expressive functional programming features. So you can write in Scala very concise, expressive code. You can work 
with a lot of immutable values rather than a lot of kind of mutable objects that I find harder to reason about. You have an extremely rich expressive type system and very good type inference so that you get a lot of support from the compiler in reasoning about your code without having to have a lot of like boilerplate type annotations the way especially in the earlier days of Java you had to. And so the, you know, the way that I originally thought about Scala coming from a Ruby background was that users writing user-level code rather than library-level code in Scala, you basically could treat it like Ruby or Python. You could write code that looked like good Ruby or good Python more or less, maybe some more curly braces, but get the benefits of a static type checking and get the benefits of a much faster runtime. Mm. Now, as a library developer, it's a little bit different because there definitely is quite a bit more cost in terms of the type system when you're building a library in Scala. There's a lot more you have to learn. But from my point of view, it ends up being worth it. I think Scala walks this incredibly difficult kind of tightrope of extremely good integration with Java, this very object-oriented mutable system, and yet providing a lot of facilities for a functional programming style. And if you told me someone was trying that, I would say that they're crazy. But I think it actually does a very good job. And coming from someone whose previous experience was with extremely minimalist languages like Smalltalk and Scheme, which are like at the complete opposite end of the spectrum. So I'm not like a Haskell person, but I do very much enjoy working in Scala. Yeah, super interesting. It was also interesting for you, as you said, because Scala should perform quite well under circumstances where you have a lot of data as you had for Stripe. So I'm wondering, in the end, did it perform well? And was Rainier as successful as you wished for the models that you developed for Stripe that you talked about earlier? It was successful in the sense that we shipped models to production for that particular set of problems we were trying to solve that did perform well, that we were happy with the performance. Yeah. It was not, or, or maybe I should say not yet successful in the sense that we did not have a large number of people at Stripe who were using Rainier. Do you know why? I think one of the things that I underestimated was the amount of statistical knowledge and jargon necessary for somebody to build a Bayesian model. And one of the things that I'm thinking a lot about right now is how do you give these tools to people without making them understand oh, I need to use a beta binomial likelihood here because I've got a ratio of counts where I'm uncertain about what the probability is and that has its own distributor. There's all of this kind of statistical machinery that even if the sampling is taken care of for you, and I do think that PPLs and samplers like HMC do a great job of reducing the amount of things that people need to think about. They're not writing custom Gibbs samplers anymore. But you still, even to write down a model like a generative Bayesian model, is a lot for somebody to learn. And I had some success with introducing, in particular, the book Statistical Rethinking at Stripe, and I ran a course on that. And that's a great book for kind of teaching people who don't know this stuff how to think about these kinds of generalized linear models in a Bayesian way. But it's still harder than it should be. And when I say that, I mean you can take a typical kind of finance person and ask them to build a Monte Carlo simulation in Excel and they'll be able to do it. So conceptually, building a generative model that has kind of priors and uncertainty and so on is something that I think a lot of people can be comfortable with. Or you can take a typical engineer and ask them to build a simulation if you frame it that way. 
and they'll be able to do it. But there's so much terminology and this kind of zoo of distributions and understanding about what it means to condition that people don't have. And so I'm really interested in how you could reframe a PPL to make this kind of model building accessible to people who are engineers but not statisticians, or potentially even people who build models in Excel that aren't statisticians. And that, I think, was the thing that seemed to keep adoption down at Stripe of Rainier. It kind of hit the technical requirements, but it didn't hit the usability requirements from the point of view of kind of a broad group of engineers, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I really agree. And I think some guests have said that on the podcast that indeed the cost, you have a quite high fixed cost to learn Bayesian methods. But then when you are able to pay that fixed cost, you get a lot for free and you get a whole framework, as you say, because being able to think about models with a generative framework is really useful to tailor your models to your use cases. Absolutely. But of course, it comes at the price of investing a lot at the beginning in understanding all the terminology, the different stuff you have to know. There are like the priors, the posterior distribution, the posterior predictive distribution, all of that. You have to understand what it is to make real good use of the Bayesian framework. And it's true that it's still clearly an investment. But, and you cited, you quoted Richard McElroth, statistical rethinking. And in the second edition, he wrote this sentence several times that I love, which is, if you're feeling confused at this point, yes. it's completely normal. It's just that you're paying attention. And I keep reminding myself of that each time. Yes, it's such a comforting thing. And, and that book is wonderful because it eases you into it. And then it just mm. throws you completely off the deep end. Um, and so it's easy to yeah. get sucked in by the first few chapters. And then you're like, what? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, I, I really love that book and, and that approach. But I do think that it should be possible to get the fixed cost down. One thing that I found very useful when talking to engineers without a stats background about mm. this kind of thinking was to frame it as a reversible simulation. To say, look, you know how to build simulations, you know how to go from some random configuration to some output through some stochastic process, right? And now I'm telling you, look, now I can show you some output and we can reverse the simulation and say something about those inputs. And that was a little bit mind-blowing to people, but also kind of a way that they could grasp the essence of what was going on. But then you actually tell them, okay, so you're going to build this reversible simulation by composing a bunch of random variables that are sampled from a bunch of distributions and you have to, you know, right? And then they, they're lost again. And so I feel like there must be a way of giving people an easier entry point to that. But I also believe that even more important than letting people build their own models and getting more people able to build those models is getting more people able to build decision systems on top of the posteriors and, and on top of the posterior predictions. And that's something that, for example, statistical rethinking kind of glosses over because it has more of a scientific bent where maybe just understanding the data is the goal here and maybe prediction, but not so much decision making, right? Yeah. Whereas in industry, ultimately, this comes down to you have to make a decision. 
And I think that just the kind of simple Bayes action decision making is actually the most important thing to spread in industry, even if that means that they're working with black box generative models. And I mentioned Profit earlier. I think Profit is a really excellent example of a very flexible, configurable black box model that does use Stan and does produce kind of posteriors. I think there's lots of people for whom it would be better for them to adopt that model and then have a very rich custom decision-making machinery on top of that where they're writing a custom utility function and setting out their decision space and so on rather than maybe writing a custom model. And so I think my two hobby horses right now in this space are one, how do we make models easier for people to build? But probably even more importantly, how do we make it really easy for people to do good Bayesian decision theory on top of the output of models that maybe even other people have built? Yeah. That's a very good point. I think we talked actually a little bit about that with Thomas Vicky in episode 11 mm -hmm. about hierarchical modeling, but we ended up talking also about Asian decision-making, as you said, and Thomas did some work about that and some, some blog posts that I could repost in the show notes. I really agree that it's a really important point and... Actually, I'm planning to do a whole episode dedicated to Bayesian decision-making. Yeah, and I still have to find the appropriate guest, by the way, for this episode. So if you have any recommendations, I'm all ears. I'll think about that, yeah. Yeah, that's really something really important. But I think what's always puzzling to me in these cases is that for, as you said, non-so-technical people, like a bit technical, but not that yeah. much, they don't really code that much and so on, you want an interface that allows them to build a model quite quickly and quite easily. And there are actually some really nice projects on that. One I'm more familiar with is a project called Bambi for a Bayesian model building yes. interface. Yes. And that's in Python. And there is particularly Osvaldo Martin, who is also an RVs and, and PyMC3 core dev, who works on that. And that's really great. It's a high level Bayesian model building interface. And you can run PyStan and PyMC3 with that. But I think always a limit maybe of these kinds of framework might be that at one point you're going to have to think harder about your priors, think harder about the way the model is structured. And then you have to be more versed into how to code that thing from the ground up and there I don't really have a good solution. I guess it relates to what you said, you know. Yeah, so I, I think there's one kind of making it easier, which is to try to target people that are maybe less technical. People that are domain experts, maybe, who can do a little bit of coding in Python or a little bit of coding in R. And I think there's the BRMS uh, package yeah. in R that is kind of similar to Bambi. There's another way of thinking about it, which is, I think, particularly well-suited in the Scala ecosystem, and in the kinds of teams that I was in at Stripe, which is not how do we reduce the level of kind of programming experience that you need, but to almost flip that on its head and say, let's expect an extremely accomplished professional programmer, right? Mm. Someone who is, is a very experienced engineer, but is not a statistician. <laughs> how do we make it accessible to them? 
So mm. someone who would have no trouble if you told them, oh, you're writing a simulation, you need to write a load balancer, and so you need to simulate a bunch of realistic traffic. That's a very natural thing to them. But you say, we want to simulate this generative process that's happening in nature or something, and, and they don't quite have the, the tools to do that. So I think bringing inference to engineers is a really interesting problem space that I think you don't want this kind of Bambi-like abstraction where you're pulling it up into this high level and hiding the, the generative core. I think you want a way to expose the generative core in a way that feels more comfortable for people for whom these distributions are not super well-known or for whom maybe converting freely between like logit space or log space and so on and other spaces is not something that they're super comfortable with doing. So how do you get that to them? Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. It would be like giving them something that they're more familiar with uh, so that you can lure them in, which is actually also what best things like Bambi are trying to do. But for other audiences, as you say, because exactly. Bambi, for instance, exactly. I think is more targeted at doing uh, mixed effects models for uh, biology, social sciences right. and, and stuff, you know, it's not that much for engineer, I guess. I say these are all interesting things to me, and of course Rainier does none of them, right? So, so Rainier, <laughs> Rainier still requires all of the stats. Rainier does not have a Bayesian decision theory API. It's something I'd like to add, but I'm not sure what the right way to do it is. The contribution from Rainier is really to allow you to, you know, the same people who might be able to build something in PyMC3 or PyStan to be able to build a model that then runs very fast in a kind of industrial technical environment that maybe you need to run on the JVM or you want to be able to run on a Spark cluster or something like that. And, and so that's yet another axis here, which is, yes, you need to pay the fixed cost of learning about it, but maybe you can at least deploy it industrially in production more easily. That was going to be one of my next questions, which would be, how does Rainier fit into the probabilistic programming language? And I think you kind of answered that question. And maybe a follow-up question would be, for the moment, you guys are still like pure Scala, right? You don't have a Python interface like a Python or an R interface or else? That's correct. I guess in principle, at a certain point, you could imagine having some language or model description that could be generated from somewhere else, the way like PyStan generates Stan code, and then Stan is kind of this engine that evaluates it. I do think that Rainier's kind of sampling engine it is really the most valuable part. So the compute graph, the optimizations in the compute graph, the way that it compiles to JVM bytecode is more novel and more interesting than the higher level modeling API that Rainier exposes. I'm proud of the higher level modeling API that Rainier exposes, but I think it's okay. I think the underlying computational machinery in Rainier is much more exciting. Mm. And so if that's true, then it might actually be valuable to allow people who are not Scala developers to still make use of that sampling engine in the same way that Stan certainly allows people who are not C++ programmers to make use of their sampling engine. Yeah. It's not something I have any concrete plans of ground right now. If somebody else were really interested in that, I would certainly be happy to work with them to make it possible. Hmm. But I think a lot of my focus will be on improving that engine, that computational engine. And so 
that should pay dividends if more broadly and maybe add more value to the world if at some point there were interfaces to it. So that's super exciting. It's not something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. It's certainly not something I'm going to work on myself anytime soon, but it's a definite possibility and I can see a lot of value there. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That would be a really awesome project, I think. And so you talked a bit about what are Rainier's main strength, in your opinion. But I'm wondering if you also see some weaknesses to Rainier that you have in mind. Absolutely. I mean, it's very immature relative to Stan or relative to PyMC3 in, in a number of ways. For example, multivariate distributions is currently still on a development branch. It's something that I have work done on, but that I'm not happy enough with the API yet to actually do a release with. We are still using effectively static HMC or EHMC, which is kind of slight variation on static HMC that randomizes the path lengths a little bit. So we don't have a nuts implementation. And I think even once we do have a nuts implementation, it will not be as sophisticated as the dynamic HMC that, for example, Stan implements. I'm sure that our adaptation and tuning schedules and so on are subpar relative to what they could be. There's also some cases in which the kind of vectorization inside Rainier is sort of insufficient. What I would say is that it works extremely well if you have a large matrix of observations, that's no problem. But that if you have a large matrix of parameters, effectively Rainier ends up representing that as a large number of scalar parameters. And so that can turn into either wasted duplicative computation or just like very large kind of graph sizes that slow things down. So there's lots of work to do to make it better. But I think the flip side of that is that there are many cases where its performance is better, in some cases much better than say Stan and PyMC3. What it can do is more limited, but in its sweet spot, I think it performs extremely well. Yeah, I see. I see. And maybe to dig a little deeper into that, sure. I'm wondering if there is a kind of issue that you guys often see on the repo or on your models that makes you think, well, if I had to do it all over again, I would do that differently. Are there these kind of issues for you that makes you say that? So Rainier does not have a large number of users. And I think that so far that's been a blessing in that I have felt relatively free to reinvent even fairly core pieces of Rainier sort of between releases. Yeah. And so there have been many times when I have felt, oh, I wish that I had done things this way instead of that way. And what I have done is gone and, and redone it, right? And so I mentioned earlier the first instance of that, which is that, oh, the way we're doing things will never allow us to do auto-differentiation. And so that was quite a rewrite. I think currently one thing that I'm kind of staring in the teeth right now or something is I think I'm going to have to completely redo the way that posterior prediction works and unify that. So right now, posterior prediction really looks quite different from inference, right? So if you sample mm -hmm. from a prior, then, then that's kind of one API. But if you want to make a prediction from a similar distribution, that's effectively a different API. And it's actually going to be quite a lot of work to unify 
those and maybe constrain the expressivity of the prediction. But I think it's going to have a lot of benefits also by doing that. And so that, again, I mean, that's going to be a very deep restructuring of the code to do that, but I think it'll be worth it. And so there's always this struggle for me as an open source author between the value of having a lot of users and a lot of adoption and so much value and so much fulfillment that comes out of that. And on the other hand, I think having a lot of users really ties your hands because you feel like you can't go completely change things. And so it's this difficult balance of how you progressively declare stability or kind of invest in documentation or so on. And I would say that right now I'm still in the phase where I feel relatively free to reinvent what Rainier is. Not to the point of completely throwing it out and completely declaring everything that has happened so far deprecated. And I still want to support anyone who's using any version of Rainier. But if the next release of Rainier completely deletes a bunch of types that people used to use to do uh, posterior prediction and replaces that with something else, I think that's a net win. Yeah, yeah, I see. I see what you mean. And definitely you can afford to have less incremental changes compared to Stan or compared to what we do in PyMC3, for instance, yeah. Right. Of course, then you have PyMC4, which is similarly a kind of basically ground up rewrite. It's going to change the API, it's going to change the, you know, it's actually nice to see the PyMC project taking that kind of dual approach of incremental changes to PyMC3 while still allowing really fundamental rethinking in PyMC4. So I, I think not all projects would do that, but it's good to see. That's true. And maybe because we're getting short on time, I could ask you a lot more questions, but I'm wondering on the different models that you did. Uh, it sounds a little like you did more models all year in time than right now, but that could be an interesting question still. I'm wondering if there are common difficulties that you encountered with your models and data and how do you usually solve them? Yeah, that's a very broad question, I guess. But (laughs) I think maybe the most difficult thing for me coming to Bayesian modeling from a kind of industry approach using things like random forests or using things like deep neural networks is that if you're using, say, a random forest... It's really all about generating this kind of as wide a feature vector as you can, right? Really throw the kitchen sink into it, have a very large number of features that are probably have like complicated correlations and interactions, and you just kind of don't really care, and you don't worry about it, and you just throw it at the random forest, and it kind of sorts it all out, right? Yeah. Compared to a kind of generative model where you're trying to be very thoughtful about what this data generating process is. And the difficult point is where you've kind of done your first basic version of this generative model, and then somebody comes and asks you a very reasonable question like, oh, well, wouldn't it help if you also incorporated this feature? Wouldn't it help if you also incorporated that feature? Don't you think this is also dependent on the time of day, (laughs) the industry that this merchant is in, the number of times they've visited the website over the last seven days <laughs> or 14 days, can't you just throw that in too, right? And if you were working with a random forest, you'd say, sure, I'm just going to add a column and change nothing else and press a button and see whether or not my area under the curve is better or something. Mm. 
And it's not obvious what the equivalent is here. Mm. I mean, yes, if you've got some kind of generalized linear model, you can add another term to it. But how are you scaling it? How are you regularizing it? What are the interactions? Is, if this is continuous, you're doing one thing. If this is discrete, you're probably doing something else. If it's discrete, do we need to introduce hierarchy here? So all of these questions ultimately make your model better. But it's just in terms of the workflow, you have this expectation, or at least people I worked with had this expectation, that it was trivial to throw another feature into the mix. And that was just something that you just did in an afternoon and either it works or it doesn't. And so, whereas in a generative model, that typically is not true. And so the failure mode that I've seen is that you end up stuck on these models that do very sophisticated modeling of a very small subset of the information that you have available to you. And where it's not obvious how to incorporate a bunch of other information. And by and large, more sophisticated models on less information do not perform as well as less sophisticated models with more information. And so that's the balance that I think is hard to strike. I do think that tools like Bambi or BRMS do provide a bit of a middle point there. It's a little bit more like, okay, just throw your feature vectors at it. That for me was a recurring problem in Bayesian modeling is understanding how to bring back a little bit of that feel of let's just dump more data at it without it just regressing into, oh, this is just basically a tool for doing linear regression or something. Yeah, yeah, it's a very good point. And I think it could be another uh, podcast episode. Plus, there is the fact that it can also really be a blessing to be forced to think hard about the predictors that you want to have in your models, Absolutely. especially if you want to do some causal interpretation of the result of the model. Yes, I do think that it is in some ways a blessing in disguise. It is excellent to have yeah. to think through those things. It's a little bit similar to the way people talk about dynamic languages versus static mm. typing. You know, I find in Scala, I sometimes do get frustrated with how do I give this code the right types? How do I set up my type hierarchy to make the compiler happy? But really what it means is that I have to think harder about it. I have to be more explicit about it. And that can be a really good thing. Whereas if I were working in Python, say, nothing drives me crazier than particularly the tensor code, where it's just like, ah, oh, you know, we've got this tensor, it's got this shape, we're going to manipulate it into that shape, and we're not going to think very hard about this, and we're making errors left and right and center. So there's a little bit of the same kind of feel where mm. random forests are a bit like working in Python where you just like throw a tensor at it and a tensor is a tensor, whereas in Scala or in Bayesian model, you have to actually think about what your data is and have a well-structured, well-reasoned model of it. So there is your unified pitch for doing Bayesian modeling in Scala is yeah. that if you're the sort of person that likes to actually think about your models, you should also like to think about your types. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a super uh, comparison. I've never heard it before, but uh, it's really interesting. Before asking you the last question of the show, I'd like to really quickly ask you, maybe uh, because you seem really interested in that, what the future of PPLs look like to you? Is it like a Bambi for uh, engineers? <laughs> I think that the future of PPLs most likely looks more like a spreadsheet than like a programming language. Frank Wood, who's now at UBC, which is actually in Vancouver, so quite close to me, 
Mm. We've done a little bit of work on this, and I think Microsoft has done some different work on this. But I think that if you look sort of in the wild, where do people build kind of generative models? Where do the most generative models get built? And I think that's inside spreadsheets. And I think that there's a lot that we can learn from the directness of that, from the immediate feedback that you get from changing a cell on a spreadsheet, from the kind of integration of the data and the modeling environment. And I'm not saying that a PPL looks like extensions to Excel, right? I, I, I don't think that's necessarily the right approach, although it obviously has some appeal. But I do think that taking the lessons from spreadsheets and from how successful those have been as an end user programming tool and figuring out how to bring inference to that, because that's really the missing piece. Lots of people build forwards generative models in spreadsheets. Very few people then condition them on data. Yeah. And so figuring out how to connect those two dots, I think is the most interesting, maybe most ambitious future for PPLs. But I do think that the other piece of it is what we were touching on earlier which is how do you strip out the jargon? And I think a lot of this is about elicitation of priors. How do you get people to capture and describe their priors without just saying, oh, that's a beta 3.4 or whatever, in ways that are more natural, more intuitive, easier to get a domain expert or an engineer to describe? So one thing that I've been toying with a little bit is more of information theoretic way of describing prior distributions, yeah. where yeah. instead of asking people what the distribution is, you ask them, what are its moments? If you know, what's the minimum this can be? What's the maximum this can be? What's its expectation or its median? Or what's its 95th percentile? And depending on which things people can tell you about it, well, then that gives you a prior that you can work with. And so I'm very curious what an API that worked like that would look like for describing distributions. And that, I think, is maybe a concrete incremental step that I can do in Rainier. Yeah, yeah, it's super interesting. And indeed, yeah, I think also maybe in addition to the information you just mentioned, also asking for the shape of the distribution that people have in mind without them saying the name of the distribution, but just drawing what right, Literally shape. drawing it, yeah, yeah. Let's build an iPad app that people can trace with their finger exactly. the distribution they have in mind yeah. and label some points on the axes and then we'll extract a distribution from that. I mean, I think that would be a fascinating experiment to try to do that. Exactly, yeah. That would be awesome because that would be like a super way to elicit friars from non-technical people, but from people who are experts in their field. That would be awesome. Yes. Well, we should do that just after the episode. It, it Excellent, great. Yeah, long, yeah. We'll, we'll take this yeah. afternoon. We'll hack that out. Yeah, yeah exactly. Shouldn't take that long. <laughs> okay, you know, before we do that, though, I have to ask you the two questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. Okay. So the first one is, if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? Ah, there are so many. There are so many. I think the things we've been circling around, though, are really close to the heart of what I think I would want to, if I were setting out a research program for myself, what I think I would want yeah. to solve, which is really how do we get people to make better decisions? Mm. More than anything, maybe this is because of my industry background, but that point of decision making, I think, is something that humans and companies really just don't do as well as they could. 
And I do believe I'm enough of a convert to kind of Bayesian methods to believe very strongly in this kind of Bayes action framework for decision making. Mm. Let's get our posterior over the state of the world. Let's have our utility function that takes a possible state of the world and a possible action that we can take and tells me how good or bad that would be. And then let's integrate over that kind of joint distribution and find out which action has the highest expected utility. And so I think, how do we get people to make more decisions in that way? I think we need better tooling around that, Mm. tools that can take posteriors and give people who are not necessarily experts the ability to build their utility functions and their decision spaces and help them make decisions. But then also, I think we need ways of generating posteriors. And so we need better generative modeling tools. We need to make those more widely accessible. So that's right now, certainly in terms of the Bayesian space, the thing Mm. that I would like to pursue and do expect to pursue. In a completely different area, I'm (laughs) also really interested in kind of home manufacturing, things like CNC, laser cutters. How do we get better at allowing people to design objects that they can build themselves? And I think there are similar kind of challenges in terms of accessibility of programmatic techniques and so on that apply there. Maybe, and this is too fuzzy for me, there's somewhere where these merge and where you can have priors about the object that you want and condition (laughs) them on something and end up with a posterior prediction of a laser cutter design, but I'm definitely not there yet. Plus, if you can elicit the priors with your iPad app, then you've done everything you wanted to. It's it's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that sounds like a nice roadmap. And the second question is, if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive, or fictional, who would it be? Oh, oh, I I should have I should have thought about this ahead of time so that I have a good answer. (laughs) If I could have dinner with any great scientific mind. You can take your time. It's going to be edited out uh, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let me think about this one for just a minute. Three days later. I think if I could have dinner with any great scientific mind, I would like it to be someone whose writing I appreciate and who just seems to have a lot of fun kind of explaining things. And there are a few people in that category, right? So Douglas Hofstadter comes to mind, probably based on especially his earlier books. He, he might be really have fun to have dinner with. Or someone like Martin Gardner. Or Richard McElreath, who we mentioned earlier in the podcast. I really like his writing style. He might be fun to have dinner with. But I think I would optimize for that. I have no idea what it would be like having dinner with Albert Einstein. On the other hand, Richard Feynman would clearly have been wonderful to have Mm. dinner with. So that's at least my meta answer to your question is I would love to have dinner with people who seem to have delightful writing rather than necessarily people who are the deepest thinkers in their field or something like that. Yeah, I see. I see. That's actually a utility function that's chosen quite a lot by guests when they answer this question. Yeah, indeed. Okay, Avi, thank you for taking the time. I learned a lot about uh, probabilistic programming in Scala, about all your projects, and I'm sure you convinced some listeners to give uh, Rainier a try. So I wish you good luck on this project, and thank you for all the open source work that you do. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to be on the podcast. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, of course. It was my pleasure. And then as usual, I put resources and a link to your uh, website in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. So thank you again, Avi, for taking the time and being on this show. 
This has been another episode of Learning Bayesian Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher and visit learnbayesstats.anvil.app for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true Bayesian state of mind. That's learnbayesstats.anvil.app. Our theme music is Good Bayesian by Baba Brinkman, Fit MC Lars and Megaran. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. You can support the show and unlock exclusive benefits by visiting patreon.com slash learnbayesstats. Thanks so much for listening and for your support. You're truly a good Bayesian. Change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making, let's get them on a solid foundation.